0: How can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership
1: of commons—the air, soils, water, biological diversity, cultural diversity—is as Severe critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle oh, to preserve a habitable planet, the
0: only thing which is sustainable.
1: Every place that you love is now under siege. Unregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is stake. We at shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential or not. questions
0: as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of get place. Down to work.
1: You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet.
0: Any public program to preserve land or produce food is hopeless if it does not tend to right the balance between numbers of people and acres of land and to encourage long-term stable connections between families and small farms. Jakob von Exkuhl delivered his speech, The Right Livelihood Award and Further Initiatives for a Sustainable Society in October
1: 1992. Let's have a look at it. Thank you, Krista. Thank you all. It's a pleasure and an honour to speak here to you. Ten years ago, I presented the Right Livelihood Award to a very remarkable woman, who has gone into public life to, in her own words, represent the interests not just of her fellow beings, but of animals, plants. And of future generations. She said that it was time to become both tender and subversive, and she walked her talk like no one else. We last spoke a month ago, and she was full of plans and projects. The world is colder without her, and I ask you to join me in a moment of silence in gratitude for the life and work of Petra Kelly. Thank you. The Right Loudnet Awards were set up to honor and support those working on practical solutions to the most urgent challenges facing us today. Alfred Nobel wanted the Nobel Prizes to honor those who had conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. Most people today, especially in the third world, would probably feel that our award recipients working for human rights and justice for environmental protection and spiritual regeneration is of greater benefit than that of many Nobel laureates. The prize is known as the Alternative Nobel Prize and presented in Stockholm the day before the Nobel Prizes to highlight this. Although the ethics of some recent peace and scientific Nobel laureates leave much to be desired. Our award is not an anti-prize or a little cosy prize on the side, but a challenge, a statement of different priorities. Thanks to the support of an all-party group of members of parliament, and in Sweden that means everybody from the conservatives to the communists, we present the awards in the Swedish parliament since seven years. There is no escape today from the dangers we face. My Swedish friends who had decided to leave society, to grow their own food, to live out in nature, were, after Chernobyl, more radioactively polluted than those who had lived in the cities, consumed electricity and gone and bought that imported food from, from the supermarkets. The only solution is, therefore, I believe, to set up shadow institutions to create a new and alternative mainstream and to give it as much energy and standing as possible. That is, of course, a difficult task. One of our award recipients is also a nuclear physicist, Hans-Peter Durr. His work, setting up the Global Challenges Network, helping scientists, especially, to move from being part of the problem to being part of the solution. His innovative social and peace work faces enormous funding difficulties. But he told me when his institute needs another 10 million to find out whether there is possibly another sub-nuclear particle lurking somewhere, he just needs to call up a government institution or a wealthy foundation in Germany or the USA and he says, the person I talk to obviously hasn't got a clue what I'm talking about, but the millions always, always arrive. So there are millions... For research chairs at universities to study and write reports about all the problems we face, but those who are actually out there working to change, working literally to save our planet, to save our future, they quite often are missing thousands. There's a small Swedish foundation, now based in Sweden, International Foundation, who is instrumental at the moment by uh, working with the Serbs and with the Kosovo Albanians to prevent the war breaking out between those two groups, which would bring in Turkey, Bulgaria, etc. It's a small foundation which desperately could use twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. They're having great difficulties raising it. Cyrus Vance told them that the reports they produced on Yugoslavia was the best thing he'd ever seen. They said, but, you know, what about the... All the resources of the UN And he said, well, unfortunately It's not very helpful The, the woman who is at the Yugoslavia desk At the UN has only been at her job for three months And uh, the resources of the UN While consuming enormous amounts Are not being mobilized Are not working I think Yugoslavia shows us all The failure of the present international world order Apparently totally unprepared For what happened uh, For the breakup of the Soviet And Yugoslav states and uh, leading us into a situation where it is quite clear that uh, we cannot anymore go on trusting those who would run us to do anything more than lead us into catastrophe. I came to the conclusion when I worked and uh, traveled to various international conferences in the 70s as a, as a journalist, as a translator, that the solutions indeed were not to be found in the official conferences, which I found afterwards in at least two cases actually cost more to organise than the monies which were afterwards uh, put to the solutions which were being discussed. Um, but there were solutions being offered in the so-called alternative conferences which often were held side by side. But uh, Of course the word alternative is really a misnomer because often there is no alternative to the alternatives unless you believe that to into a catastrophe is an alternative. But um, these solutions were not being taken seriously. So I asked how do you get something to be taken seriously? Well, unfortunately it doesn't help to write a book about it, publish a magazine, there were lots of those around already, but having grown up in Sweden I realized that I always remember that if you'd won a Nobel Prize, then you were taken seriously. Indeed, if you won a Nobel Prize in any subject you could after that pronounce on any other subject and you were taken seriously. (laughs) So... uh, I wrote to the Nobel Foundation and suggested that uh, they should introduce a new award, more geared to the needs of the third world and the needs of the environment. After all, by introducing the prize in economics, they had broken from the tradition that Nobel Prizes are prizes introduced by Alfred Nobel himself. But they said, no, thank you. We've decided there aren't going to be any more Nobel Awards now. And so I went ahead with my own much more limited resources. Dealing in postage stamps is not as profitable as dealing in dynamite. And um, I sold my business. I had become an expert um, on the postal history of the Arabian Peninsula. As Yves Schumer has said, an expert is somebody who knows more and more about less and less. (laughs) And it's obviously time to get out before you reach the stage where you know everything about nothing. (laughs) So I sold my business and I used the... um, the funds to establish the endowment fund. Um, if there had not been support from other donors, the award would no longer exist. But I put it at a level where I felt, you know, it, um, it wasn't meant to sort of perpetuate. If it wasn't meant to be, then the money would run out in five years or something like that. But it was meant to be, obviously, other people would come in and, and support it. And we have had a couple of donations. Um, from various countries which have built up the endowment fund since. So the award now, um, the, the total award money we now we presented in the first year was uh, $50,000, and last year it was uh, a million kroner, which is about $180,000. In the first year, our two award recipients were the Egyptian architect of the poor, Hassan Fatih, whose life's works were dedicated to showing that being modern doesn't mean rejecting everything which has gone before. It doesn't mean worshipping the ancients and believing that it must be preserved at all costs. It means building on it. And he showed what it means, if you forget that lesson, the North African peasants' buildings, mud brick adobe buildings, in which he had lived, his ancestors had lived for thousands of years, being replaced by all the modern Architecture he could afford, namely a shack with a corrugated iron roof in which his young children would die of heat exposure during the day. And um, Fatih worked to stop this. He went out with his students into the villages where those who knew how to build adobe arches were being deserted by their sons because they thought the knowledge of their fathers and grandfathers was um, primitive and old-fashioned and the sons went into the cities to become car and television repairsmen but then the, the message sort of came through that a professor had actually arrived from the capital with his students to study the, what their fathers and grandfathers knew and the sons and grandsons decided that maybe their fathers and grandfathers weren't so primitive after all and they came back and took up the trade and the skills were preserved which otherwise could be lost just in one generation. The second recipient was the forum in Tennessee where the largest commune in North America where the ideals of sharing and living materially simple but spiritually rich lives had been preserved and not just for themselves but uh, going out in the third world working with uh, peasants in Guatemala with whom they could relate because their uh, living standards were comparable. The farm was nominated by a high United Nations official Who had seen millions and millions spent on UNDP projects uh, with very little result, and here had come across a project in Guatemala which had obviously only thousands and which is making a real impact. Two years ago, we brought together the recipients from the first 10 years of our awards. Despite their very varied fields of activity, it was clear that they had much in common, not just in their refusal to let conventional wisdom, prestige, and money guide their path, but that they shared a vision for a just, sustainable, and non-violent world order, they had considered its implications, and they were working, and are working, to create it. Perhaps none of the recipients is more typical of this than the one who could not come to the 10th anniversary, because he was, and still is, in an Israeli jail. Kidnapped and sentenced to 18 years of solitary confinement. Mordecai Vanunu, the nuclear hostage who told the world about Israel's massive secret nuclear weapons program, which not even the Israeli parliament knew about. Every day we read about global interdependence, every day we're admonished to act as responsible global citizens. When he had to choose, Mordecai Vanunu took his duties as a planetary citizen seriously, not to make money, he asked for and was paid nothing by the Sunday Times of London, which published his information, but to reveal a dangerous and destabilizing military secret. His continued imprisonment is an outrage, and we continue to work for his release. I'm glad to say that it now looks as if his brother, Meir, may soon get the US visa, which he has until now been refused, He has been invited to speak by the Congressional Human Rights Foundation in Washington and also hopes to set up a campaign to free his brother and to work for a nuclear free Middle East in this country. Time does not permit me to describe the work of all our recipients, but I will, of course, be happy to answer questions and I've also brought some brochures which list them and give you further contacts and list the publications. This year, our Honorary Non Cash Award which we also introduced, usually goes to a group in the, in the north or a person in the north who doesn't primarily need, need the money, went to the Finnish village action movement, which has revitalized 2,800 villages in Finland, getting people who had left the villages to return, reviving the old Finnish tradition of talkots, which means that people get together without payment and do something together for the good of their village, like building a community centre, repairing the roads, etc. Campaigning uh, with the government to stop it from closing the post offices, etc. The cash awards have gone firstly to two people working for years to expose the terrible consequences and truth about the Chernobyl accident against the cover-up by the international nuclear lobby. Professor John Goffman from the USA, and the journalist Ala Yaroshinskaya from the Ukraine but now working in Russia because of the difficulties which have been put in her path in her native, native Ukraine. John Doffman, of course, has exposed the dangers of low-level radiation for years as a result of which he has experienced his grants being terminated, the process which happens to those researchers who come to conclusions which don't suit the establishment, whether it is Alice Stewart, a woman who discovered the dangers of X-raying pregnant women and then later on went on to discover again the dangers to nuclear power workers again found her grants cut off. Peter Duisberg, whose research doesn't suit the AIDS establishment, another one who was a very respected and well-funded researcher until he suddenly found it all being cut off. Uh, I just mentioned as an example, one of them is an award recipient of ours and the, and the, other, is, the other is a the other candidate. The other winner this year, the cash award, Helen Mack from Guatemala. It's a remarkable coincidence that the Nobel Peace Prize also went to a a Guatemalan woman this year. Helen Mack's sister was murdered. She was a sociologist some years ago. And um, Helen started the first broad-based campaign against impunity in Central America to stop the tradition that political murders are not persecuted. She has succeeded so far in having one of the the main suspects extradited from the USA, put on trial, and uh, get high-ranking military officers to to testify. Her courage is exemplary. Her her own life is, of course, in danger, and we hope that the award will contribute to protect her. And lastly, Safrullah Chaudhry, a doctor from Bangladesh who um, set up his country's unique drugs policy, on on medical drugs, which is based on WHO guidelines, which means maximum price levels, import ban on useless and expensive foreign drugs, and the production in the country of cheap and safe generic drugs. Facing great problems now, as the new weak democratic government is under increasing pressure from... The uh, Bangladeshi Medical Association, who of course are being pressured by the international pharmaceutical lobby to drop the drugs policy, and also from the splits in uh, the NGO community. There are many NGOs now being uh, dependent also on outside funders, and uh, we felt it was high time again to uh, give him this award now to prevent this, this drugs policy, which as I said is, is the first of its kind, to quietly sort of being dismantled and, and disappearing again. In 1984, I helped found another shadow institution, the Other Economic Summit, which shadows the the G7 summits held every year. Uh, We have representatives from all over the world and I think are much more representative than the World Economic Summit, which the G7 call themselves, who of course represent not a new world order but a very old world order of greed and very short-term perspectives who have lost, I think, all credibility today, but who still cling to power. We focus very much on the media attention. There are thousands of bored journalists running around this secretive G7 summits for most of the time, and we provide them with, with information which um, has enabled these summits to get a certain publicity. As you know, there was one in, the, in Houston a few years ago. It was in London last year and this year in, in Munich. And um, in, in December, we're actually arranging another kind of toast, the other Europe summit, in Edinburgh at the same time as the uh, EEC uh, summit. Another uh, recent uh, smaller initiative I started, uh, I went back to the country where my my father's family ancestors lived for 800 years, Estonia, and uh, I was quite horrified that the only role models which were there, especially for young people, seemed to be the black marketeers. They had lost uh, the belief in Marx and replaced it by a belief in the market, which was supposed to just automatically bring paradise on earth. And uh, I set up something called the Estonian Renaissance Award, which is to bring out those who are actually doing something for their country, something useful for their country, and give them a standing, give them an award and a bit of financial support. It's very exciting to see now. We're waiting for another month to see what nominations come in, and we're then going to present the first awards in on on February 24th, Estonia's National Day. Why do all these initiatives lead to what does the world order look like uh, if these initiatives would constitute the mainstream? Or to put it in a different way, if Schumacher had been listened to 20 years ago, what would the world look like today? So far, I think it's clear that all our work has not managed to seriously impede the destruction of our ecosystem. In Europe, the EEC study on the environmental effects of the 1992 so-called single market concludes that despite 20 years of environmental action programs, the environment in the EC continues to deteriorate. That is, they haven't even stopped the destruction. It hasn't even stabilized. The situation elsewhere is, of course, no better and often much worse. The helplessness of our authorities can perhaps be best be summed up in a report to the Swedish government which concluded that the extent of soil acidification today was not even considered imaginable at the end of the seventies. Those who warned of such dangers since long before the end of the seventies, only to be denounced and ridiculed, can of course justly feel outraged at such official blindness, which can only be reminds me of the words of Mark Twain, when they had lost sight of their goals, they redoubled their efforts. (laughs) Today, the seriousness and urgency of our predicament is affirmed even by those political and scientific elites who a few years ago, only a few years ago, accused us of extremism. If you read recent statements like Council of Europe Environmental Conference in Vienna 1990, Final Declaration. Hard Declaration of 17 Heads of State, 1989, Bergen Environmental Conference Before onset, 1990, U.S. Academy of Sciences and Royal Society of the U.K. Joint Declaration, 1990, and, of course, Senator Gore's excellent book. These now sound like Green Fundamentalists did a few years ago. But, to quote a recent report from the IIED, the research institution which was set up as a result of the Stockholm Environmental Conference. It says, no government in the world has made any major change in policy designed to convert the unsustainable to the sustainable. The gap between what urgently needs to and can be done today and what is being proposed and implemented is now so vast as to threaten the credibility and legitimacy of our entire political system. Instead of making, in the words of Senator Gore, the rescue of the environment, the central organizing principle of civilization, we are appeased with promises of too little, too late. There is a failure, and not just in politics, but among uh, the population as large, to face up to what we are actually facing. There was a study um, done of students and, and, and adults published in the Futurist magazine uh, some time ago, which, <coughs> where well, they were asked to describe their perspective, their own future perspective, and that of the planet. And you had three quarter majorities who sort of expected an environmental breakdown or a, um, um, a nuclear war within um, 10 years or so at most. And you also had three quarter majorities who, when asked about their own future, expected long, happy, contented lives. So they just were not prepared to make the, make the connections. In the words of the, the Polish author Stanislav Lesz. We have become so sophisticated that we seem to think we can do without ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the worst problem I think today in the circle free world is the censorship by soundbites. You cannot really express a complex idea, a new idea in 30 seconds, but you can of course mouth platitudes in 30 seconds flat. So we have a situation where the present global order appears only to be able to recognize those needs it can satisfy and appears only to be able to see as real those problems to which it can offer solutions. This amazing short-sightedness is exemplified by the current GATT, free trade negotiations, which will create a framework for the global economy totally at odds with the needs of the poor and the environment and designed to circumvent democratic institutions. Laws for the protection of people and the environment are to be restricted and localized, while laws for the protection of corporate profits will be globalized. The opportunity to ban weak pollution controls and other externalizations of environmental costs as unfair trading practices has been missed, thus ensuring that any national problems will be globalized and more difficult to repair. While we debate the first steps of an environmentally responsible global order involving pooling sovereignty, the current world economic order has already abolished sovereignty as governments have lost the power to control capital. It's instructive to compare the GATT process of automatic sanctions for non compliers with a cumbersome process of environmental accords which have to be negotiated and implemented one by one, and where all we can do is, to quote Dr. Mustafa Tolba, the head of the United Nations Environment Programme, try to bring non-compliers to the attention of the public. One solution to our predicament could, of course, be an international body to implement environmental accords, which has a status comparable to that of the multilateral trade organization which is to be the outcome of the present GATS negotiations. According to the draft final text, this MTO shall quote enjoy in the territories of each of the member states such legal capacity, privileges and immunities as may be necessary for the exercise of its functions. Full stop. The alternative If this is allowed to continue, may of course well be an environmental breakdown which would cause a political and economic upheaval more fundamental than that which happened recently in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Neither democracy nor the market economy are likely to survive. The ensuing confrontations as minorities try to protect their privileged access to ever scarcer environmental resources at the costs of the livelihoods of the majority. If we are lucky, in quotes, we may get eco-Stalinism with strict rationing of resources. I think present policies now lead unavoidably to such a breakdown. Among environmentalists there is an increasing realization that this may occur much sooner than expected, not in decades, but in years, to quote Lester Brown. It is therefore imperative that we begin to create the foundations for a sustainable world order without delay. This implies to quote again from Senator Gore's Earth in the Balance to put in place a policy framework that will be ready to accommodate the worldwide demand for action when the magnitude of the threat becomes clear. We must provide, I believe, some realistic scenarios as to how this transition can actually occur. Environmentalists have largely ignored this issue, apparently expecting those who have led us into the present mess to undergo a joint sudden conversion. But I think it is very naive to expect that existing institutions can be made to perform with any degree of success tasks diametrically opposed to those which they were created. Whatever their achievements, neither UNSAID nor the Rio global forum, the largest ever gathering of NGOs, managed to produce an action plan coming anywhere close to what is required, namely, to quote, yet again, from Senator Gore, an all-out effort to use every policy and program, every law and institution, every treaty and alliance, every tactic and strategy, to use, in short, every means to halt the destruction of the environment and to preserve and nurture our ecological system. End of quote. The Code of conduct adopted by the non-governmental organizations actually demands that they should aim to limit their activities to their own countries. Why should a movement which has long emphasized global interdependence be alone, restricted by national boundaries? No wonder one seasoned observer from the NGO scene concluded that the hope that the civil society could ever organize itself with enough effectiveness to be able to challenge and transform existing structures is beginning to appear like an absurd fantasy. Something is missing. The economic crisis of the 30s and the horrors of World War II brought together the international community in 1945 to set up a new range of global institutions capable of preventing a repetition of these catastrophes. They did not just amend the League of Nations. The threats we face today demand an initiative of at least similar boldness. It is absurd to expect the unprecedented challenges of today to be met by cosmetic additions to the institutions of the 1940s and 50s when threats to the environment and limits to growth were nowhere on the agenda. I think for both practical and psychological reasons, we need a new start. Just as different institutions represent us in our roles as citizens, producers, consumers, etc., we now need, need an organization which represents us in our role as members of a living earth and sets the sustainable boundaries within which human activities can function. Just as we accept restrictions which deprive us of the freedom to harm others, so we need institutions with the power and legitimacy to defend us against global lawlessness. For I believe No society can set and debate priorities and goals when these have increasingly to compete against the overriding threat of the global environmental collapse. No sensible policy is possible under the threat of such an upheaval. For example, climate change makes nonsense of most large-scale industrial projects. projects. The new institutional framework required must, I believe, include all levels, from from the local to the global. The global level is crucial, not only because pollution knows no boundaries. The present global power structure is making local and regional action increasingly difficult. The New World Order of GATT, the EEC single market, etc., actually outlaws activities which conflict with it in fields as diverse as environmental conservation, national legislation, etc., e.g. on on patents, etc., and cultural protection. All such activities can be declared impediments to trade and overturned by powerful sanctions. This has already happened, for example, in the case of, of Indonesia, who have been told that if they impose an export ban on tropical timber, they must also prevent their own people from using it. Anything else would be discrimination. It has happened to both Brazil and India, who have been told by the U.S. that unless they strengthen their patents legislation to make sure that it protects U.S. multinationals as well as U.S. patents legislation protects them, this would also be regarded an unfair impediment to trade. Ignoring the issue, therefore, of what global institutional framework we need and want means allowing the transnational corporations, GATT and the World Bank to set the global rules under which we all operate. The noted Indian ecologist Vandana Shiva argues that democratising the global is the next step. An earth democracy cannot be realised with a global domination by undemocratic structures, and third, community empowerment, subsidiarity, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, etc., all became will become rather meaningless unless we succeed in safeguarding the global level. Local, regional, national democracy presupposes that the global level either cannot, as was the case for a long time, or will not routinely interfere with or overturn our decisions. Today, that is no longer the case. That does not mean, of course, that effective local and other activities should be neglected. But another element needs to be added, a broad-based coalition for a new institutional world order. We can no longer just campaign for what should be done while leaving the how and the by whom to others. There are several possible strategies, none of which are mutually exclusive. All will meet with strong opposition, attempts at co-option, etc., and will require massive popular education and mobilisation. A number of excellent proposals have been presented by the Stockholm Initiative, Camdoon, etc., to make the United Nations system more effective and accountable. These range from internal reorganisation to the creation of new bodies, for example, a stewardship council. The unsaid process is also expected to generate new advisory and monitoring institutions. But it is likely that such bodies will lack the necessary powers to stand up to vested interests. It is not good advice, which is lacking today, but the political will to do what is needed. National governments have, in the words, in the words of Shiva, become contested ground no longer the guardians of the common good and the longer view, but vainly trying to placate conflicting special interest groups. They have, in the words of Winston Churchill, become all-powerful only to be impotent. The unsaid process offered NGOs unprecedented access, but their input was ignored. Even the recommendations from the UN Center on Transnational Corporations were ignored and the Center abolished. Hardly a hopeful sign for UN reform. There are other examples. The recent study of the effects of the Chernobyl disaster by several UN organizations, which flatly denies the widespread health effects, has lost much UN standing on environmental issues in Eastern Europe and the former USSR. And placing the major funding vehicle for the transition to sustainability, the global environmental facility, with the World Bank whose chief economist still believes that, quote, there are no limits to the carrying capacity of the earth that are likely to bind any time in the foreseeable future. Lawrence Summers. This is hardly a recipe for credibility. Recently, in Eastern Europe, broad-based popular movements coalesced into a force able to withdraw legitimacy from the institutions of state power, take them over and transform and recreate them around so-called round tables. I think the Rio Global Forum illustrated the problems anyone would face who tried to repeat this strategy anywhere else. Yet the risk that the credibility of existing authorities collapses completely in a sudden environmental catastrophe has to be faced. The events after this Seveso accident in Italy provide a pointer to what could occur then on a much larger scale. When the official experts after the accident were unable to provide satisfactory answers about the toxicity and effects of the leaked dioxin, the evacuated local population decided that the whole event was part of some corrupt plan to take over their homes and fought pitch battles with the police to re-enter the exclusion zone. Facilitating and strengthening cooperation and joint action among relevant NGOs is an urgent priority both to prevent more services and to ensure that recognized, credible institutions exist if prevention fails. This will not be easy, of course, as one recent study noted, mergers of NGOs are few and far between. There is now a growing tendency for corporations to try to, to reach direct agreements with large environmental NGOs. The reason is obvious. For example, the German chemical industry has been forced into costlier production changes due to shifts in consumer preferences, including boycotts, triggered by environmentalists, than by laws and government regulations. Reaching agreement with their major opponents enables corporations to plan more securely and enhances their public image. While such dialogues have many positive aspects, the outcome is not unproblematic, Unless the arrangements are made legally watertight, the NGOs will be forced to maintain a level of mobilization and vigilance, which may prove very difficult once an agreement has been reached. Also, the credibility of public institutions could be weakened further, as the strongest private players reach agreements which show NGOs as more capable than governments of extracting concessions from the corporate sector. And even if successful, such arrangements can never add up to a capacity for managing the transition to a sustainable world order. Many traditional societies had a dual power structure with a chief running day-to-day politics and wise elders looking at the longer-term implications. They would, of course, not have the same unquestioned standing in modern societies. But I believe there is a place for an independent group of respected environmentalists to pronounce on urgent issues of planetary survival and equity. Such a group would have considerable moral force and with members such as Wangari Mathai, Jose Lutzenberger and Lester Brown could provide a different and welcome point of reference for those exposed to the propaganda of the consumer society. Professor Johan Galton, one of our recipients, has proposed, for example, that there should be an automatic right of reply to advertisements, putting the case for not buying the product in question. My experiences over the past 12 years with the Right Label Awards, the Other Economic Summit, etc., have convinced me of the value of shadow institutions in giving prominence to other values and providing new role models. But this can only be the first step towards introducing community values into our global anarchy. I think there are obvious advantages in co-opting and identifying with the quote, winning ideas of today, namely democracy and global interdependence. No strategy which ignores or replaces rather than extends informed democratic choice will succeed. That is why I have proposed a People's Council for Global Sustainability. The Council would restore the balance between who we really are and what we are doing to ourselves, our neighbors and the planet. It would give a voice to those parts of us which otherwise do not not get to choose or vote, to those shared community bonds and values which Adam Smith regarded as the necessary restraining context of the market society. It would, set framework, it would set a framework for environmentally responsible entrepreneurship. Mm. To acquire the, le- the necessary legitimacy, the council should be directly elected. For practical reasons, this could mean an assembly elected by some form of proportional representation, which would then elect the council executive. Such elections could take place region by region or continent by continent. They could be held today... In Europe, for example, perhaps to elect the European Sustainability Council, which in its turn would send members to the Global Council. Similar elections could be held in North America and South America, Australia and the Pacific, and probably in Africa, without many problems. In Asia, it's realistic to envisage a number of regional councils. The prospect of being excluded or offered only a reduced role should act as a powerful impetus towards democratic reforms in countries where these are still outstanding. But there is no need to wait. Any nation or group of nations can take the first step by announcing their support for the Council and calling a conference to draft its constitution. I suggest that in the spirit of global community, candidates for election would not have to be nationals, nor should purely nationalists be allowed. Candidates would need to obtain a minimum number of signatures in several countries in order to qualify Considering our children's stake in an undamaged environment and the extent to which their interests have so far been externalised, it seems only fair to lower the voting age limit for these elections. The Council's term of office should exceed that of national parliaments to enable it to take a longer term view. To fulfil its tasks, it would require independent financial resources, for example the right to levy certain taxes on pollutants and armaments. The new Council should be part of the United Nations family, which has so far been missing a much-needed third leg based on popular sovereignty, next to those based on nation-states, General Assembly, Security Council, special agencies, and those based on money, World Bank, IMF, etc. The campaign for such a Council could unite those in the South and North who want to reform and democratise the UN and working for global governance – as well as all those working for sustainability and fairness. UN organizations already active in this field, like UN and UNDP, could be linked to the Council providing experience and expertise. The Council would develop environmental adjustment programs to to ensure that countries pay their environmental debts to each other. It would ensure that the global majority can no longer be ignored. Interference would no longer remain the privilege of the North. If the South must save its forests, then we must stop activities damaging the global environment. If we can tell Brazil to stop cutting on its rainforest, it can obviously tell us to stop building motorways. As long as the global commons concept appears to the South as a new trick by the rich to appropriate their resources, then global accords will not work and the South will continue to attempt to emulate the North with disastrous consequences for all of us. Development at the expense of the environment simply does not work. To quote Francis Cancros, the environment editor of the London Economist, economic growth that relies on destroying the environment may enrich the most powerful but impoverishes the weak. The Council would codify and enforce treaties and conventions embodying environmental rights. It is interesting to note that one of the initiatives the U.S. government took in Rio was to dilute any attempt to even have uh, those treaties, which have already been freely entered to, reviewed to expose, you know, why they were not being implemented. So I think this is uh, there is an urgent task there needed. You have, for example, the final declarations both of the Stockholm 1972 conference and the Helsinki 1975 conference, with both commit all the signatories not to harm the environment of other nations. Now, if that had legal force, we can imagine what what could be done with it. The the Council should have the power to impose fines and sanctions on members who fail to implement their commitments freely entered into. It could promote a a global crash program of energy conservation and mandate product efficiency standards. An independent court could be set up under its auspices to try crimes against ecological security. The People's Council would be no world government or global management agency. While its decisions would be felt in many areas, its powers would be more akin to those of an independent central bank set up to ensure economic rectitude, i.e. it would set the sustainable boundaries. While it would set standards and be able to intervene directly in emergencies, the Council would have no power monopoly. It would be charged to enforce agreements, Freely entered into, it could be made subject to jurisdiction by the Hague Court, for example, in case of complaints that it had overstepped its powers. And I think there's one point here which is is quite important to emphasise. We are quite often told that you know we must be we must be positive, but of course in in many areas uh, what is needed is not to sort of go out and propose alternative solutions to what um, has been built up. It is actually as the Chipka movement says counter-development, once you can stop maldevelopment, once you can stop the giant dams, of course you may need small dams, but these can be built by the local people, the knowledge is there. The destruction of the present parts is so great that quite often just interfering and blocking this is not something negative, it is something positive. It is enabling nature again to pursue its own path, to pursue its self-healing path, to work in line with nature. I think it's very important to emphasize this, otherwise we very easily get into this this trap that you know what we need is better global environmental management. I think the earth suffers from too much management, not from too too little management. It's illusory and are prepared to support a strong international organization. In the UK, a recent Gallup poll found that 9 out of 10 favored setting up an international body to solve global environmental problems. And it's interesting that this applies not just to the rich countries, there is a, a, a study done uh, by a, a US group called the Global Teenager Study, which went to a number of countries, including very poor ones, and they found that even the poorest ones, the top concern of these teenagers was the continuing deterioration of the, of the environment. And as I've said before, much sovereignty has, of course, already been ceded to various supranational bodies such as the EC, GATT, etc., and to corporations without much concern for the popular will, which we keep hearing all the time when we talk about ceding sovereignty to an environmental body. So to conclude, I believe that the, the basic question we face today is simple. Will we continue to demand vainly that the existing order Changes its spots, or will we focus our energies to create a true global community? Thank you.
0: And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development, anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher Lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the New Economy Movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher Lectures at centerforneweconomics.org slash order pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerforneweconomics.org. This library and the Schumacher Lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust building berkshares, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region and engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org/donate or call us at 413-528-1737. To make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jugend Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.